Do you find yourself looking at the produce and wondering, how else can zucchini and eggplant and cabbage be cooked? Do you wonder what magic or what secrets the chef have that makes their food seem so much better? There's no trade secret books chefs use. It's experience. Oh yeah, grown. Where are you supposed to get experience if you don't have the knowledge? And how do you get the knowledge if you don't have the experience? Fair enough. But let me tell you how to start. As the voice is going to say, the food is on you. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 56. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Subscribe to the Culinary Libertarian podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. The show is also on CastBox and Stitcher and several others. When you're out there on the subscribe page, head over to the review portion and give the show a review and rating. Those things help move the show up so more people can listen. Holiday party season is getting close. If you are going to host a party or be a guest at a party, you'll probably want some wine. Check out the selection. It's huge of wines, both domestic and international, at my affiliate, culinarylibertarian.com slash CAWine. California Wines has reds, whites, blushes, and champagnes. Find the perfect bottles for the host gift as well as the perfect bottles when you are the host. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash C-A-Wine. It's a solo episode today. Even with the incredible access to food information, internet and food TV, there remains a bit of a question about what to do with an ingredient and how to make a meal from the stuff in the fridge. There seems to be a hesitancy about what's possible. I want to start to bridge that gap between what can be done and what you can do. You may have heard me mention once or twice that I used to teach culinary school. And (laughs) more than a few occasions when I would talk to the students about what we were going to make that day, well, there were lots of glazed looks. Just like... (laughs) What are you talking about? That look of confusion, sometimes complete with words, was to ask, how in the heck am I supposed to do that? The do that part was how to take a pile of ingredients and make anything. It is almost as if they were on that TV show Chopped and were presented a basket of aloe vera cola, lychee nuts, and ramen noodles, and said, quick, make dinner. Open heart surgery might have seemed more possible just then. The question really is, how am I supposed to know what to do, which means what's possible, 
with a green bean or a zucchini or an eggplant? There is not only one exact answer to that, but of any of the answers, you can't just go get some of it and be done. The it is in part reading cookbooks. If your first response to that is, ugh, well, then it might be a bigger challenge for you. That doesn't mean you can't do it, but whatever appears to come easily to you will be harder for another. However, maybe there's something you do well and find that easy. Painting, wood carving, landscaping. I can't draw well. I can't. But, 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 you said practice. Yes. Yes, I did. And if I didn't, I'm getting to it. If getting better at drawing was important to me, I would practice. But it isn't important to me. I would rather put my efforts into those things. I at least have a chance of improving my skills. So I'm saying if you bake poorly and have tried and still failed, then you should quit. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you like eating baked goods and want to make something you want to eat, practice is how you get there. My drawings have never advanced beyond a drunken four-year-old, so I moved on. Let's keep the artist metaphor going, even if it gets stretched a little bit. Our tongue, our palate, is colors. Bases of whites or beiges or light colors. Then there is the color which stands out, reds and greens and blues and silver and gold. The bases are the main part of what we're cooking. Let's say beef, uh, pot roast, or braised short ribs. Those other accent colors are the garnishes or flavor components. We can see our herb containers as the many various colors of our food palette. So let's think about Van Gogh's The Last Supper in Cafe Terence at night. Now, we all know this. Sometimes it's called just this, it's not Star Star Night, but it's the, uh, I, I think it's one of his famous pieces. It's, yeah, well, it's a cafe you're eating in France. The blue sky, which is really the nighttime sky, the blue sky with the white stars is part of the base, the bracing liquid, perhaps, for our short ribs. And the black shadow buildings are structure, but they're not really noticeable. That's the flavor of the vegetables and the wine in the braising liquid. So you know those buildings are there because, of course, cities have buildings. Just because they're shadowed, it doesn't mean they're not there. You know these other flavors are there, even though you can't detect them. They're there. Now, in the foreground of this painting, on the left is the bright, hot yellow and reds. And on the right is the bright green. And as our eye moves toward the center, there's some warm greens and oranges and a sprinkle of red and purple, maybe even a little bit of pink. That has eye flavor. We may not even know we're feeling that picture or any pictures, but the color plays on our senses. It has an order to it. It has an order to it, even if an imbalance. Look at the fear and loathing watercolor, and it's vibrant, but chaos. It's a mess. <laughs> it has no order. 
we can see vibrancy, but we see mess. At least I see mess. I think it's, I, I like it, but I don't, it doesn't, doesn't, it's okay. It's Hunter S. Thompson, big deal. Now what's next? So let's take the short rib dish. The base is the beef, which is a good sear and the braising liquid, which comes from good stock and the vegetables and the herbs. So there's a great forward. Um, forward means on the tip of our tongue, when you taste wine, when you're tasting flavors, the first thing you get, the forward flavor, front one, is that beef flavor. And then there's the muted bouquet of vegetables and herbs and maybe wine. And that's sometimes you're going to, you, you, you get those flavors and tastes. And we talked with Peter Reinhardt about those two differences. Taste is more the whole body sensation of what you're tasting. So you really concentrate and you can sort of pull out the carrots and the onions and the celery in the, in the back of your tongue. That's the, the deeper flavor. That's the base. That's the foundation. That's the structure of, of the dish. And just like a wine, uh, cooking done well builds flavor levels. So we need a side dish to go with our short ribs. Now, here might be where that deer headlight look comes in. What do I make and how do I do that? Is what that look says. Just like in those paintings, those both done well and poorly, the success is in part by compare and contrast. The paintings which hurt our eyes uh, are visual taste bud chaos. It makes no sense. We remember it for all the wrong reasons. That painting, which looks like you were there, such as those of the Everglades by the Highwaymen, those paintings have balance and order and vibrancy, and that works. They're impressive, and they impact us in the right ways. The right ways are invoking a sense of place, and a feeling of that place, and a satisfaction which is almost a visual umami. The sum is the, the, the sum of the whole is greater than the parts. So back to our ribs. They're done. They're tender. They have a, that deep forward beef flavor and that nuance behind. What does that dish need for good palate balance? Mushy? Crunchy raw, what's going to complement the dish? So let's think about the flavors that we taste. Bitter, sour, sweet, salty, and umami. The ribs will be umami. And that's almost more a, it's a tough one. It's almost more a physical sensation than it is an actual taste. Although when you taste tart, your whole body sort of just <laughs> tightens up. Umami is... Uh, if you don't like mushrooms, think about maybe a good cooked down tomato sauce. There's something, it's not acidic, I mean, tomato is, but the umami sensation is sort of a overall, just kind of like a a pleasing, it's like a, <laughs> I don't mean to sound gross, it's like a mouth hug. Um, it's just, it has a wholeness, a completeness to it. So the ribs are umami, it might be a bit sweet. And rich, which is not a flavor, but more of a texture. And all of that's going to need an acid. It needs something to cut through the rich to make balance. So how do I know it needs acid? Well, because it needs 
I need contrast. A compliment would be, say, adding a, just to make the point, adding a stick of butter to those ribs. That's too much. That's just, that. that's imbalance and for the wrong reasons. Now, if we had a big pile of very buttery mashed potatoes, yeah, it might taste good. In fact, it would probably taste really, really good, especially with that braising liquid on top. I think for as satisfying as that is emotionally from a comfort food standpoint. There's nothing wrong with comfort food. There's nothing wrong with feeling good about the food we're eating. Looking to make some balance, that's not going to do it. So the acid thing is going to come in to offer some contrast, which is, uh, let's think about the colors. We have that bright yellow against the deep brown, but what is it going to be? Dill pickle. Well, that's certainly acid, but that's a silly choice, of course. But a lightly vinegary coleslaw will work, and it has the added addition of the crunch. So let's think about acid and alkaline. On the pH scale, they are at opposite ends, but they serve a similar function to help cleanse the palate. Alkaline tastes bitter. And we don't necessarily always think uh, bitter when we taste alkaline things. So uh, soda crackers are sort of notoriously bland, insipid almost. Uh, lobster tends toward the uh, bitter side. So uh, the pH goes from 0 to 14. 0 is the most acidic and 14 is the most alkaline. 7 is in the middle. Uh, lemons and vinegar are very acidic. They're down somewhere between two and four. That's pretty harsh stuff. Um, soda crackers, I think, are somewhere in the nine, lobsters in nine. Interestingly enough, grapefruits are alkaline. Crazy, huh? So we can use these two things as balance from something that's sort of central. As long as we go to the opposite extremes of seven, we're okay. So let's think about parsnips. Parsnips tend toward the bitter side, but they're also a little bit on the sweet side. So lightly caramelized parsnips is a really good idea, at least on paper. So we have to think, now, now the, the real test is go cook it. So parsnip has that bitter note that I mentioned. Caramelize, which is to cook in the pan, before burn, burn is caramel, but burn is not tasty. Uh, caramel is is going to also offer a, a a complex taste. You have the sweet from the caramel, but also the bitter from from the thing starting to caramelize. So, so if we thought about saying caramelizing a lemon, we're going to get a little bit of bitter because that's what burn is. That's what caramel is with the acid, so we're going to get balanced. Now, don't go do that, because I don't think that's going to taste very good, but I'm making a point. So the parsnips, a little bitter, a little caramelized, some more sweet, some more of the bitter to go with the richness of the ribs. That sounds like something that would really be interesting to eat. I would like to eat that. When we start to think about how to build a dish, let's think first of the background or the main course. What is the center of the plate? What are its flavor characteristics and texture characteristics? What will work better? Contrast or compatible? Or both? Let's move on. Let's think about a piece of salmon, even if you don't like salmon. Salmon is interesting from a flavor in that it is very strong, 
but it is also very rich. What do we add to that rich, flavorful fish? Crunchy is tough to do without being cliche, and by that I mean fried spinach or fried leeks or fried parsley or some other idiotic thing. Uh, I used to do those things when they were all the rage, but it's messy. It doesn't eat well. It sort of ruins the fryer, and it loses its crunch as soon as it hits something wet, which is pretty much as soon as it's plated. So that salmon dish is from a menu I ran at a restaurant in Tallahassee. Crunchy came into this, but it came in another way, which happened also to bring bitter. Bitter greens. Now, kale was like still like the big deal. And I personally, I don't really care for kale as such. However, I really, really like escarole. So we did for that salmon dish, creamed corn with a little rosemary and braised escarole and that seared salmon. And it was, it was, oh God, it was a, it was a joy to eat. It was rich for the addition of the creamed corn, but the two vegetables, the corn and the uh, escarole, uh, had a balance themselves because the escarole had enough bitter to go along with all that stuff and still keep its identity as a flavor. Uh, it just, that was a good dish. That was, I, I like that dish. So now back to the center of our plate. What is it? Knowing what kind of flavors work with or against the item in the center of the plate leads us now to consider the produce section in a slightly new way. Nabi cabbage or bok choy sauteed with some onions, a dash of vinegar, and maybe some red pepper flakes is a very nice side dish that now adds more to the plate than just an aesthetic of green. Think about the flavor combinations you like. What dishes have you had that you remember and think about the flavors that made them work? Turmeric has an acrid taste, and that sounds bad, but fresh turmeric sautéed with diced zucchini and diced tomatoes brings a flavor and a color, which is a great foil against fatty and acidic. Like that painter getting better at painting by painting, the cook gets better at cooking by cooking. Folks, let's take a minute out for a word from my sponsor, Anchor. Test ideas. Now we're back to the cookbooks. You've got to read cookbooks by authors that you trust. And so what does that, what does that mean? There's scores and scores of cookbooks out there. And there's just only so many ways you can put together a, even a lot, but a finite quantity of ingredients. So what, what should you look for from your cookbook author? If your cookbook author is giving you a list of ingredients and saying, put all this in the pot, bring it to boil, cut it to a simmer, serve in a bowl immediately, it might work. But you haven't, without the instruction from the author, been advised how to coax the most amount of flavor out of that list of ingredients. Is there a better way than just dumping everything in the pot and turning it on? Uh, if so, 
what you should be looking for is a cookbook writer who is writing a procedure. That's what I'm looking for when I buy cookbooks. The list of ingredients, I don't care about the list of ingredients. <laughs> it's, it's a dime a dozen. What I want to see is the procedure. What has this person thought of in getting flavor from these ingredients that I hadn't considered? Or does the, and, and that's, so that's important. So if you're, if your cookbook author has a paragraph of procedure and serve when it's done, you know, okay, fine, it might taste good, but why? If the other cookbook author is giving you detailed steps and explaining doing this now will cause this to happen and will deepen the flavor, now not only are you making a dish that's going to taste good, but you're learning something along the way. And really, so the painter, uh, you know, some of the greats, they, I don't know, they may have just painted and painted and painted and figured out stuff on their own. And maybe with painting, that's easier to do than with cooking. I don't know. I paint as well as I draw. But cooking, it can be kind of expensive if you muck up your ingredients and then if you can't eat it, it's pretty demoralizing. So there isn't a lot of incentive to try again if you feel like, well, I can't do this because I can't do this. Truly, I understand the feeling. So getting some support from a cookbook writer who writes good procedures is a way to build on your skills. And even if you have good skills, you can improve your skills. Gene Simmons has been playing bass and kiss for 40 years, and they still practice. So there's a reason even the greats continue practicing because they're going to improve. I don't care if you don't like Kiss. The point is, he's been doing this for 40 years, and he still practices. So he's getting something right. All right, let's talk a little bit about caramelization. Uh, I've mentioned it with, say, the parsnips and the funny test about the lemons, but caramelization is a complex way is a complex flavor that works both as a forward flavor and as a base. Now, as I mentioned before, burn, well, that's just filling the garbage can. Caramelization will, it washes off, it dissolves, it's sugars. And sugars dissolve in liquid. And sugars don't necessarily care what the liquid is. And as you caramelize your stuff, uh, and carrots and onions and parsnips and meats, uh, things that are high in sugar, which doesn't, so it's hard to, carrots are high in sugar even though they don't look like it. Onions are high in sugar even though it doesn't seem like it. Uh, meats are high in protein and protein caramelizes. So these things are going to give us flavors. And when we add our a broth or a little bit of water to deglaze or wine and then milk, whatever we've got, the, all of that color turns into flavor, but it turns into a really deep flavor. And that's where that back palate of you get a forward flavor of the thing. And then it's like, it just keeps coming. It's like, wow, Ooh, I got this and I got the carrots, I got the parsnips, I got that caramel. That's what we're looking to build. We want to, develop these bases of flavors. Some of the best sources for good ideas about flavor combinations are Chinese cookbooks. There are scores of excellent Chinese cookbooks. And 
While his TV show may have been funny to watch, Martin Yan, Yan Can Cook, let me tell you what, the cat is phenomenal. You want flavor combinations? Martin Yan, you can, he's fantastic. Martin Yan is amazing. Another one of my favorites is Susanna Fu Chinese Cuisine. And I'll put a link for that on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 56. She comes at Chinese cooking from her roots, which are Chinese, but also brings a Western bent. So thinks of flavor combinations that aren't necessarily traditional Chinese, but puts them together in ways that really, really work. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know I have some extensive training in classical French cooking. Classical French cooking is pretty precise, and only after a certain level of skill is interpretation possible. For in classical French, mastery of the basics is paramount and complicated. Uh, in La Guide Culinaire, Escoffier makes suggestions for pairings for the main plate thing, uh, for the exact same reasons we're talking about, like getting balance or contrast or compatibility and things that go together well. And Escoffier made a career out of experimenting. Italy is a much easier food to cook and find balance. The key difference, yes, I know, blasphemy, the key difference between classical French and Italian, in my opinion, is the Italians are first about flavor, where classical French is technique first, and from that comes flavor. So think classical French is fundamentals first, Italian is passion first. So if you're running drills in basketball and you're doing um, death valleys or whatever those, you know, everyone has their own name for running, you know, quarter court, half court, full quarter, full court, run, 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 and then shoot, 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 all of that before you start playing the game, that's classical French cooking. Italians are, go shoot the ball, hey, you know what, come on, let's go play. You know, that's probably not Italian, but you know, I'm having fun. Uh, the Italians, not all of them, will overcook a green bean if it tastes better that way and worry less about it being al dente. One of the many great teachers in books about flavor is Mario Batale. Yes, he's had some issues in the news. If you're one of those for whom one past bad deed undoes the canon of work, well, try Lydia Bastianich. But Mario Bad deeds aside, is an excellent cook and knows how to get flavors. When you amble into the produce section and see those veggies on display, think of Degas, Monet, and Georgia O'Keeffe, or Salvador Dali. They all used the same medium, paint, but each found very impressive ways to push that medium to a unique end. If you don't like Southwest flavors, that just means you have 95% of the rest of the world of flavors at your fingertips. Coastal food is different from inland food anywhere on the world. Regions vary, and in all of those places, find the flavors you like. Cooking is like painting. You have to do it to get better at it. You might fail. Start again. Unless it's burnt, people will eat it. I have been focusing on the painter, 
just to keep my metaphor going, but maybe you don't really get painting. There was a fellow who wanted to work in the kitchen in that Tallahassee restaurant and had zero restaurant kitchen experience. I think he'd been a waiter or a busboy. But he was very, very eager, and he was a trumpet player. I gave him a shot. I couldn't speak to him about food as a cook because he couldn't speak about food as a cook, but I could talk to him as a musician. Now, I don't want to suggest that I'm able to play. I can't. I can play at playing, but I can discuss how a trumpet player plays. Miles Davis or Dizzy are excellent examples. So think, think of the recipe as the sheet music. It's the basic notes. The song, the recipe, is good as it is. But in jazz, they call improvising stepping out. And Miles and Dizzy were two of the best. They are seasoning the recipe of music with audible spice. Contrast or compatible notes to create something greater. That's what we're going to do with the food, with this axiom. Less is more. That means properly cooked and seared and seasoned food is good as it is, but one or two tweaks will make it better. More is just more and muddies the flavors, and that right there, knowing when to stop is the line between a skilled cook and a learning cook. I'm going to put a link to a pickled eggplant recipe uh, on the show notes page. And this was something that was served to me in an Italian restaurant in Boston. Now, this was actually a pretty good restaurant. It came highly recommended by a local and wasn't even in the tour guidebooks. So we went there. (laughs) Man, this was great. And I love this condiment so much that when I got back to that restaurant in Tallahassee, I deduced how they did it. Uh, I think it was served. So what it is, the pickled eggplant is as it sounds. It has vinegar to it. Not a lot, but it was a little bit of a little bit of acid. So, the the Italians have a better sense of digestion when eating, and so they add, they offer um, a, a an acid condiment like this pickled eggplant. I think it was going with a veal salto burger, and the acid cuts the rich of the veal. So as you're eating it, you're getting a complement of flavors. But also, they're thinking about digestion, and so there's other aspects to think about so you don't feel so yuck when you're done. But the real fun part of this pickled eggplant is cooking eggplant in a completely unexpected way to get something that's really, really amazing. So I'll spoil the surprise. The eggplant uh, is boiled and then puts it in like, what the heck are you talking about? It's going to turn just like the paper pulp. It doesn't. That was like, wow, this was just, this was a heck of an insight. So 
with that kind of an insight as you're perusing the produce section, thinking to myself, all right, Reed, fine, I'm inspired to go look, and all I see is zucchini and yellow squash and leeks and fennel and a bunch of cabbages. Well, nearly everything can be grilled. Uh, even cauliflower can be grilled, although personally, uh, little cauliflower florets cut so that there's a good flat side, caramelized slowly, and then added to uh, a pasta. You can do, I would, I would do a noodle like a brigatoni or a uh, penne, uh, maybe a bow tie. Uh, so the cauliflower, some, uh, some onion, some garlic, definitely some tomatoes. So the acid and the caramel work together. Uh, a little bit of stock or vegetable broth or water. Um, you could do cream, but I would, I, I would personally, from my own taste, I'd stay away from the cream because I want less fat on the dish. I want to really enjoy that cauliflower uh, and then toss it with some, uh, some of the cooked pasta, a little bit of fresh herbs and a little bit of vegetable virgin olive oil and some Parmesan pecorino romano cheese uh, or some, some grated cheese and that's dinner. So practice some different things. Think about get ideas from cookbooks. So you, if you're not comfortable just going out without guidance and there's Trust me, there's no shame in guidance. <laughs> I'm still using cookbooks to remember the details because it's, it's okay to need help. There's nothing wrong with needing help. But you're the one that did the work. Help or not, the guy who wrote the cookbook or the person who wrote the cookbook didn't do it. You made the food. Take the credit for it, but take the help. Who cares? Um, think think about possibilities. So uh, zucchini slices. Salt it a little bit so it pulls the water out of them, then grill those. Uh, even lightly grilled. That's not going to be charred. Corn, uh, well, corn on the cob's well, probably nearly done. But um, either soak it and grill it in the cob so it's more like steamed, but it gets a little of the flavor. But grill the, whole, grill the corn on the cob and get a little bit of color on that and then use that uh, in... A Tex-Mex salsa, cut it off the cob with some cilantro and avocado and tomato and cumin, um, <laughs> extra virgin olive oil, salt and pepper. Uh, it's missing something. Think about that. But there's there's ways to go, and don't overlook. This is I mean it's really worth trying because it's it's kind of amazing. Uh, the microplane. Let's say a quarter or a half an inch of fresh turmeric, and nearly every grocery store now sells them. Uh, it's usually in the produce, maybe by the ginger. It looks kind of like ginger. It's still, it's, it's called the rhizome or, uh, root. Um, give it a rinse. Don't bother peeling it. The microplane will take care of it. It's so small, it's hardly worth even peeling. And the skin is so thin, it doesn't matter. Uh, so the turmeric, and no kidding, zucchini, a little bit of onion, some uh, dashed tomato, uh, that turmeric, some extra virgin olive oil. Uh, you can use a little bit of butter if you want butter. You can use ghee. You can use pork fat. Uh, the turmeric, the fresh one, still has that that turmeric flavor because you can't get past that. But it has a mellowness 
and the color is just the color is so much fun. But that flavor and the compatibility with the uh, with the zucchini and the tomato <laughs> that's a that's a fun dish. That's just it's just fun to make. It's fun to eat. It's just good. Um, so practice and just that's really all I can just repeating myself. Get some cookbooks that you trust for the kinds of food that you want to try and experiment a little bit and send me pictures, put them up on the Eating Liberty Facebook group. Let's see what you've done. And if you're open to it, we'll discuss how to make it better. But your didactic for this week is go cook. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Just as a reminder, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and share it on social media when you see either a post of the show or at the bottom of the show notes page, there's the little um, social media buttons. Uh, You can share to your page and that helps more people find the show also. For dry spice needs and especially spice mix needs, I use Savory Spice, and you can too, with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice. We make here at my house our own onion chip dip, and I use the Mount Hood Toasted Onion Rub. It's intended to be a dry rub for meats, but man, I tell you, when we add it to the chip dip, oh, we get an amazing deep flavor. All the savory spice blends are excellent, and pretty much they're exactly as I would make them. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice to stock up for your holiday parties or find perfect gift sets for your favorite cook. culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.